This is an ABC podcast. Ramadan Mubarak, everyone. Welcome to the Minefield, a program about negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. And I begin in that fashion, Scott, because we are entering a series that has become something of a tradition, disrupted really only by COVID, I think, one year. Yeah. COVID meant that, I mean, we didn't ignore the series altogether. We just compressed it violently into a single day. Was which... it one episode? Or something? <laughs> it was one episode. <laughs> by definition, cannot be a series of one episode. That's right. I mean, yeah. you know. It might have felt like a very long episode, which from memory it did. <laughs> but, uh, it, it's true. And it is interesting. This is, I mean, we've, we've done series in the past outside of Ramadan. We've done series, but they've been intermittent series. Yes. I, yes, I love what we do during these four or five weeks. I love the prospect of building sequentially week after week of kind of harvesting or gleaning things that we've learned from one another and from our guests in one week and then trying to find what might be the common denominators, the the shared learnings, the things that we can then um, build on top of one another and reach something like, uh, what is it, a kind of critical mass towards the end or something like maybe a picture? It, this also reflects, doesn't it, that any serious conception, I think, of the virtues and vices ends up realizing that the virtues are connected and vices are connected. There's a rot that's at the heart of almost all of the vices uh, and it simply manifests or expresses itself in certain opportunistic ways. And at the same time, there's a, there's a central discipline, I think. There's a fundamental series of restraints and orientations of the self that ends up expressing itself through each one of the virtues. And one of the nice things about having a sequence of episodes where we can simply build and build and build is those underlying connections uh, end up becoming, well, abundantly clear to me at least. Yeah, and it's amazing how often they're interrelated, they're flip sides of one another or mirror images Mm. of one another. And so I guess one of the challenges (laughs) of this I know what you're going to say. Go on, tell me what I'm going to (laughs) say. That we don't end up simply saying the same thing every week. Or every year. (laughs) Or every year. (laughs) Every year is fine. Nobody's going to remember what we did last year. Well, I don't remember what we did last... I mean, I don't remember what we did last week. Well, actually, I do in this case. It was Faulty Towers. That one sort of sticks in the memory. That was fun, by the way. Anyway, let's not dwell on that. Um, Yeah, so I guess what we've tried to do... The first few years, I think, we did the Ramadan series. The idea was just not to engage, really, with the news cycle. Mm -hmm. A kind of broadcasting version of fasting, I suppose, if you like. And we'd sort of come up with certain concepts. Over the last well, last year and then again this year, we've based it instead on a particular text, mm-hmm. sometimes loosely. So last year I would say it was relatively loose. Mm-hmm. This year is a bit sort of more... Prescriptive, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. I sort of threw this... Uh, it was a thought bubble, I guess, is the best way to put it. And I put this one to you, and I, I have to admit I was surprised at how quickly you jumped on this and that you thought this would work as a series. Mm. So why don't I get you to introduce it and explain why it is you think this is a good idea. Okay. Very happy to. Can I ask you a question first? Sure. So you just described what we do in this series as the broadcasting, or let's call it the intellectual equivalent of fasting. What goes on during Ramadan is the a kind of self-denial of certain things that aren't necessarily bad, certainly not bad for you or bad in themselves, mm. but things that tend to distract from, let's put it, some of our deeper needs. So the idea mm. is, is that when we fast from various daily practices, the fasting is meant to remove from our immediate attention let's call them penultimate goods. So things Mm. that are not bad, things that serve really vital aspects of human life and flourishing. Well, they're necessary. And necessary, thank you. But that aren't necessarily the thing that our our lives are primarily supposed to be oriented towards. And so by pairing away some of the penultimate goods, it gives us the opportunity to reflect in a more concerted way some of the ultimate goods. And ultimate goods, though, that tend to be obscured because of the nature, the busyness, the preoccupations 
of daily life, of political debate. One of the things you've been insisting on this show for years now is that part of the problem of public debate is the fact that we've turned almost all all moral concepts into political concepts. Mm. So things are only bad insofar as they're politically bad or political deleterious or harmful. Yeah. And what I guess I wanted to ask you is, it seems to me that what we try to focus on during these Ramadan series, we're not focusing on things that are apolitical, that have nothing to do with our common life, mm. but rather things that aren't simply non-political. So it just strikes me that as I think through the various series we've done and the things that we're setting out to do over the next five weeks, each one has profoundly political implications for the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we nurture and cultivate the conditions of our common life. And yet to think about each one of these things as simply political is to miss something entirely. And I think to miss something of the necessary form of withdrawal from those things that tend to distract uh, that's at the heart of this series. Have I gotten that aspect of what it is yep. we're doing here right? Yep, I think that's right. But what you'll see when we come to so there are five episodes in this series just because of the way Ramadan falls this year. Yeah. Um, what you'll see is that they really go to the heart of one's character mm-hmm. from which everything else kind of emanates. So if you want to talk about the political implications of this, you can, but really the starting point is the purification of the self, really. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I feel about, I don't know if you feel the same way, but is there's a certain efficient comprehensiveness to this list. Do you know what I mean? It's true. So it's a short list, but it's a, when you stop and think about it, it covers so much of what a person could possibly be uh, or do, but mostly be. Mm. And that's, that's, I think, why there's potential here for something that can fill something like a series. Yeah. And, and it is interesting to point out, by the way, that, you know, the great political philosopher, John Rawls, he did identify a series of characteristics, a series of emotional dispositions. He called them moral sentiments without which democratic life is fundamentally impossible. And so he identified, for instance, certain vices that act as acids that threaten to dissolve our social bonds. I mean, he named them as things like contempt, arrogance, envy, callousness, egocentrism. It's, so it's interesting that we wouldn't ordinarily think of each one of these things, contempt, arrogance, envy, callous, as political vices. No, we would think of them as matters for you. That's right. Exactly right. Um, and, but they are all diseases of the heart. That's, that's the thing about yes. them. And so there's a connection here. If you want to get, move into the political realm, there's a connection between the political realm and one's own character, one's own virtue, mm. which shows up in cliches that we most say and then mostly ignore, like, you know, be the change you want to see, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. That, that's sort of become what you put on a Hallmark card now. It's not really <laughs> something that we actually believe or, or live by. But that's interesting, right? Because that's actually where probably every serious moral tradition begins. Mm. It's true. All right. So, so before I introduce the list, let me just also say, this is a show where we try to engage in conversations that draw more from and have more to do, say, with moral philosophy and political philosophy. Mm. Uh, this is not a theological program. We have sort of brother and sister programs in the RN stable that do those things. We're not that kind of show. So it's really interesting, I think, drawing on a rich theological tradition, which we're doing in this particular series, but then seeing the way that that resonates with, I think, other cognate philosophical and even religious traditions, their resonances with Judaism, mm. with Aristotelian virtue ethics, with Stoicism, um, with, with Kantian moral philosophy, for sure. So it's interesting that we're not doing a theological discussion, but we're drawing on, let's say, theological source material as a way of, of getting this going. So, the, Yeah, the most theological source material we've actually ever used. Yeah, it's true. This series. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. For this year's Ramadan series, our guiding theme comes from a well-attested supplication that's attributed to the Prophet Muhammad. You've told me that the order varies, but... Yes, it's reported many times. And not always in the same, yes. In many different chains of transmission, which I should explain that one day, but I won't now. But the order varies in the various transmissions. So the order in some ways is not 
that important and is up to us and we will order it in the series to suit us. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But this particular order is fascinating to me because the more okay. I've thought about it, there is a narrative undercurrent. There is something here that leads one from one to the next to the next to the next. Uh, and so that, I mean, that, that might simply be serendipity. Uh, it might simply be contingent and we're seeing meaning where there's not necessarily meaning, but still the proof of the pudding is going to be in the eating. So yeah. the five, the five elements to this prayer. And I should, should I say, actually in most narrations, there are four. And the fifth one is in some other narrations that have weaker provenance, okay. but we'll use it not because we're discussing it as, uh, you know, an authentic religious text. Authoritative. Yeah, in, in that sort of sense. But the first four that you're about to mention are in all of them. Okay. All right. Um, and it's also curious that each one involves a prayer or a supplication where the prophet asks God to save him from something, to save him from a practice, a vice, a disposition. Mm. So in this supplication, this four slash five part, the prophet prays that God will save him from a heart that cannot humble itself, a prayer that is not heard, a soul that is never satisfied, knowledge that does not benefit, and an eye that cannot weep. And what's so interesting when you take those all together is to see the way that they reinforce one another. As I said, that there's a common rot that each one expresses. But what we're hoping to do over the next five weeks is given that each one of these is a, expresses a desire to be saved from something, what is the positive image of, let's call it, an integral moral life that ends up emerging as the result of these negations? What's the positive picture that we can then begin sketching as a result? So we're going to do our best. How are you feeling, Willie? Do you think we can do this? I th well, I think we can have a go. All right. As long as people aren't coming to us for thoroughgoing religious guidance, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> one th observation I would make about those five, and the, the, the last of those, the eye that cannot weep, that's the one that has a weaker chain of narration. Mm. The first four are the, are the authentic four. But what's interesting about them is just the scope of what they cover. Yeah. They cover what you know. They cover what you aspire to. Um, they cover your desires. They cover, I mean, the concept of a heart, I'll talk about that in a second. It's a slightly more complex thing, but we might say they cover what you feel or the, the nature of your innate character. Mm. Like when you add these things up, there's not much actually left mm. that's right. in your life, I think, that's untouched by this. Uh, and so there's something in the comprehensiveness of it that I think is is really powerful. Today, though, we're starting at the beginning of that list in that order, and that is with a heart that cannot humble itself. Now, do you want me to yes, please. kick off with some opening remarks on this? Yes. So I'm, I'm not going to do this, I don't think. Uh, maybe I will, I don't know. Not for all of them. But I do think in this particular case, it's really important to tease out the Arabic here. Because actually what you've offered there is a particular translation, a heart that cannot humble itself. But there are many other ways you could translate this. And I want to just open it up because there might be dimensions to this that you want to explore. Mm -hmm. So in the Arabic, it says, Allahumma inni a'udhubika, which means, O oh God, I seek refuge in you from, min, qalbin la yakhsha. Now, the word for heart is qalb. What's fascinating about that word is that in Arabic, and you would know this because you studied Hebrew, I imagine it's very similar, hmm. words are built on roots, and so there's a huge semantic field that gathers around every word. And so a noun is always related to a verb and so on. And so there's all these resonances, I guess, to a word. So when we say the word heart in English, it sort of has a certain connotation, but in Arabic, it has a different connotation. And the relevant connotation here is the verb that's related to it is qalaba, which means to turn. Or if you say qalaba, that literally it's the past tense, it's he turned. Mm. So qalb, the heart, is actually, it's that which turns. Mm. In other words, an orientation. Yes, but also something that is in flux. Yeah. And therefore something that is vulnerable. Mm. And in the way that classical Islamic scholars understood the idea of qalb, it wasn't just a matter of where you felt, but it was also the seat of the, the intellect, mm -hmm. which has a whole um, 
I don't know, epistemological discourse we won't go into that has to do with the nature of knowing and the role of rationality and then the role of things beyond rationality. And so, which are, so we won't go into all that at the moment. But for now, I just want to introduce this idea that the, the heart, there's a reason to protect it, and that is that it can turn hmm. any which way. And it can turn in ways that are nefarious and it can turn in ways that are virtuous. And so it is therefore something that is to be protected. So this is the relevance of qalb. But the word that's actually the most complicated, I think, in this is where you've, uh, where, with the translation that we've offered is cannot humble itself. And the, the word there is, is yaksha. But this is a really complicated word, actually, because sometimes you'll see this translated as a heart that cannot fear. And the implication there is fear God. But fear is a tricky way to translate it because there are other Arabic words you would use for fear. So is it the, another word that's probably more common would be, instead of khashia, would be khawf. But the, the thing about this, and I've gotten this from speaking to people who have, my Arabic's terrible, but far more expert in the language than me. What khawf is, that sort of fear is a fear of something that you don't know. Like you don't know what the outcome of this will be. If I, I'm scared of what's going to happen in the pandemic, I don't know what's coming. I, there's an there's an unknowability and the fear is rooted in that, whereas khashia is a is a fear, but it's a fear of something that is that you do know, that you have a kind of connection with, and so it's a fear that's also coupled with love, but with a understanding your place in relation to it. So an analogy I was given is it's the kind of fear that a child might have of a parent, where the relationship is known, the parent is known, there is a bond of love that's there, but there is nonetheless a kind of position of reverence that exists there, which is why the term is also then used in the context of lowering one's self. So you can use a version of this term to describe, for example, the setting of the sun. Mm. And so you see all these different translations of it, fear, humility, humbling of oneself, Perhaps the best of them all is awe. Mm -hmm. Because you think of awe, awe combines all of these things, doesn't it? It combines a certain fear, it combines a reverence, it combines a love. Uh, there's a certain admiration that's involved in it. So this is a term that's actually incredibly rich. But the, the idea of humility that we've described it here as a heart that cannot humble itself, and it's not our translation, this is a translation that's out there. We've described it that way, and I think it works because... Humility is at the core of these things. You don't fear anything if you are in a state of arrogance. You don't love anything really if you're in a state of arrogance. You don't lower yourself when you're in a state of arrogance. You don't feel awe if you're in a state of arrogance. So the idea of the heart, that which turns and can turn so easily towards arrogance, um, being something that instead we want to turn towards being able to humble itself, to lower itself, to be open to being awestruck. There's something in that that I think simply can't be captured in any sort of single translation. Mm, wow. Can I pick things up there? Yes, please. I mean, that's, that's fabulous. And I think one of the things we want to do in this series is not to remain tethered, if you like, simply to the terms of the mm. original, uh, but also not to move beyond it too too quickly. And I think one of the fascinating things is to then hold that up and to try to find the resonances with certain other traditions that maybe have a slightly more secure place within the history of, of, of moral philosophy. And one of the things that strikes me immediately is a poet who in, in some ways is, is sort of controversial and problematic, but still you get these moments of kind of blistering insight. I'll, I'll never forget uh, reading T.S. Eliot uh, mourn the advent, he described it in the period after the Second World War, mourn the advent of an era in which there are no more sacred limits and in which transgression is no longer possible. Mm. In other words, uh, a world in which we no longer hesitate before that which we do not know, that which we cannot know. Uh, we no longer hesitate at the precipice of our own knowledge of our own limits, much less the epistemological limits that are inherent to any knowledge. They're just things that we cannot know. There are problems we cannot solve. And that knowledge of what we do not know 
or that knowledge that there are things we do not know, that knowledge that there are things that cannot be solved and therefore the proper moral disposition is to hesitate in front of it Mm. rather than to simply rush ahead. That rushing ahead might be just a form of kind of political heedlessness, the desire to make the world after our own image, or or it could be a form, as we've seen, I think, most peculiarly over the last decade, is what's sometimes called technological solutionism. Uh, The problem is we don't have enough data. If we have enough Mm. data, there's a technological solution to everything. Um, and it's yeah, a f- kind of an extension of positivism, really. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But I think the other thing that's so interesting here, the other resonances that this begins to pick up is the difference between knowledge and what might rightly be called wisdom. So Socrates very famously invoked uh, a very old conception of wisdom where he said that uh, the beginning of being a philosopher is to know what one does not know. And part of his moral commitment to the life of dialogue and mutual interrogation and reciprocity uh, is that commitment to this is what I do not know. And so I'm going to lay aside. Now, let me introduce a phrase that I want to come back to here. Therefore, Socrates would seek to lay aside, let's call it the social reputation of the self, a particular standing, a position of arrogance or authority. Arrogance in the sense of a kind of arrogation of standing to oneself, um, placing oneself in a position of, of impunity where one knows and need not be addressed. So for Socrates, part of his commitment to dialogue was this commitment to the realization, to the recognition and the living of the fact that there are things we do not know. He's keenly aware of, let's call it, his, episte- his epistemic deficiencies, the things that he does not know and quite possibly cannot be known. And therefore, that knowledge of limits can't help but have an effect on one's disposition in the world and one's disposition in relationship to others. Now, here's the final piece of this puzzle, I think, that's really interesting or that's, that's important to, to put in place. Something that we've discussed many, many shows over the last three years is what happens when forms of moral and political disagreement are carried out in public or in public fora, social media, panel-based television programs, (laughs) let's say, where the logic of the media means that one can never step back from one's position of ideological or epistemic certainty. If you step back, wow, geez, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of that. Or in response to a question, you know what? I simply don't know. Or you're right, that's a gaping hole in this theory that I've sort of devoted my life to. Those kinds of admissions, those forms of let's call it intellectual humility, where one simply says the truth, I don't know, or that's a really valid point and it can't find a place within the the ideological or political infrastructure, artifice that I've constructed here. Those forms of acknowledgement, of acknowledgement of the contribution that another has made and acknowledgement of the limitations of what I I myself might know, those forms of acknowledgement are quite simply impossible because as soon as you do that, you're not simply placing your own social reputation at stake, but you're also letting down all of those people that have uh, hitched their, their wagon to your certainty to your reputation, maybe your cultivated social presence uh, as one who is absolutely self-assured and who is skillful at taking down one's opponents. All of these, I think, are expressions of a certain form of arrogance. They might be in response to the complexity of the world and the desire to impose a kind of order on that complexity. Oh, you see, all this makes sense. So this might either be a form of technological solutionism or conspiratorial thinking. And that over-concern, that uber-concern with one's social reputation, with one's status in the eyes of others, that it means that we become impervious to real conversation with others. We become impervious to the moral reality of other persons, what their experience brings to our 
shared body of knowledge. And also, we have all these perverse incentives never to back down, never to humble oneself, much less model the virtue of being humble in the face of that which one did not know, or those experience whereby one is proved that one is wrong. So all of these things, I think, we don't think of them as virtues or virtuous. We are terrified, I think, by the prospect of admitting the gaps, the deficiencies in our knowledge, things that, as you put it before, rightly invoke awe rather than a kind of uh, a spurious defiance. But also those moments where we model not absolute conviction in what we believe and what we say we know, but rather those moments where we acknowledge the moral and epistemological reality of other people, where we simply say to them and in their presence, you know what, you're right, and I just think that's a gap in my knowledge that I hadn't rightly factored in. Well, even if the response really is, let me go away and think about yes, it. Yes, that's right. That's right. Because I, cause I, don't, I don't think we should be setting up a model whereby everyone is forced to forego or drop their convictions. No, that's right. Uh, that's just right. Be, because then I think you have something probably altogether worse, which is things become entirely relative very quickly. Yeah. Um, well, well, but I think it, can I say it, the, the alternative to, to intellectual arrogance isn't intellectual diffidence, which is what yes, you just described. That's right. But I'm so glad in your description of those sort of forums that you've mentioned the audience, hmm. because I think it is one thing for those people who are on those shows in every moment to emerge as the victor, um, and to assert their argument without any hesitation and so on. But it is a whole other thing when everybody who's watching feels they have a representative in that conversation and are conscripted more or less into their cheer squad mm. because that in a way predetermines their responses so that no one's really listening to anybody. Everyone's just cheering on their... You know when you watch a, a football match or something or a basketball match in your case and it's your team playing against another team and everyone on the other team looks the same to you? Yeah. And you cannot believe there is anyone in the world who can actually tell apart these other people wearing these funny other jumpers. And the whole game revolves around your team and your players. We call that being one-eyed. Yeah. A similar thing happens, I think, when you're talking about that sort of exchange. It, once you become conscripted into a particular team, rather than this being sort of a journey people are taking together in the discovery of something, then what you get is this situation. You become blind, really, to the others. I like that you mentioned the audience because this is what's central here, I think, is that we begin to describe a habit or a way of doing things. So it's not just about the performers. It's about a habit of behaviour that starts to pervade all of us who intersect with these moments of public so-called exchange. And that is where we begin to diagnose, I suppose, what becomes a social disease of the heart. Mm. It's that the heart that can humble itself not only is something we collectively and then and perhaps individually don't really possess, it's something that we don't want to possess mm. <laughs> because it compromises us in some way. There's no it social somehow makes us, Yes. If, yeah. Well, it feels oddly less virtuous. There's a certain certainty and dogmatism that we regard as a sign of virtuousness or of virtue. Mm when actually we should perhaps be thinking about it in the opposite way. Whereas if we came from, here are certain things which I know to be true. What I can't tell you is how that responds to every situation or how that can be extrapolated. There are people who are better than me and smarter than me who are able to do that. I don't know. But let me know my limits and acknowledge what those limits are. And what comes with, I think, this idea of a heart that can humble itself, that can feel awe, that has this combination of fear and love, that's capable of that. That's, it's basically like a heart that has softness within it. What comes with that, I think, is that that's something that is open. That's something that is in a position to receive. And obviously in the context of this particular text, to receive from the divine, but also to receive from others. Mm, that's right. This is, it becomes an important disposition. Anyway, we've gone on too long. We'll uh, have just very quickly, time. though, before we do bring in our guest, each yeah. show in this series, I want to have a, let's call it a literary insert. Um, oh. Before we bring in the guest, I wanted to offer this. 
Because what we're actually talking about is a series of the cultivation of a series of dispositions, of virtues, of practices that in turn, let's call it, cultivate the conditions of democratic life. This is one of my favorite poems from the Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai. It's called uh, The Place Where We Are Right. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow. And a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. I quite like that. Yeah, Mm. that is really good. Our guest is Tennille Porter. She's assistant professor in the Department of Educational Psychology at Ball State University. Her primary field of research involves the characteristics and consequences of intellectual humility, which makes Tennille, you pretty much the perfect person to join us on the minefield. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Scott. Hi, Walid. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so we've been kind of going on for a bit too long. I'm not even going to put a question to you. You've, you've heard our sketching out of our field of concern and the way that that intersects with or resonates with some of maybe the pathologies of contemporary polarized democratic life. Um, where do you want to, where do you want to take us from here? Well, that is a question, Scott. (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) I'll take that. Um, You know, I've been jotting down a lot of notes, but I think I really appreciate the introduction it's such an interesting topic. It's such an interesting premise. And um, I guess one place that we can start, since I, after all, am the expert here on humility, which <laughs> is one of my favorite jokes, um, is just to talk a little bit about intellectual humility and what I think that it is. So I could tell you that and then you can react. How does that sound? Sounds great. Okay. So I think about intellectual humility as kind of involving three big components. One is that you recognize that you yourself don't have all of the answers. You recognize that you're neither omniscient nor infallible. So your knowledge is limited and you are bound to make mistakes every now and then. Second part is that you recognize that other people know things that you don't know. It's kind of sense that you have you can potentially learn something from everyone. So this gets into the social component that you all keep referencing and talking about. Um, It's not enough to be intellectually humble. It's not enough to just say, you know what? I don't have all the answers. It's also to say, oh, this person over here might have something of value to contribute. And those two components come together to really inform your behavior. So, Uh, it's not enough to just recognize you don't know everything. You also need to admit it when you don't know. You need to reveal um, when you've made a mistake. And you need to listen to other people who might have insights on a topic that you don't have. It's this kind of cognitive piece, recognizing you don't know everything, recognizing other people have value, and acting in a way that accords those beliefs is what I consider to be intellectual humility. Um, what do you all think about that? What I think, as I hear you say that, Tanil, is this is why I think it's a mistake, perhaps a category error, for us to try to hive off intellectual humility as its own thing. Mm, interesting. Because all of those things you describe require a certain disposition. I don't think that's the kind of thing you can just turn on and off where you can be arrogant in every aspect of your life. And then when it comes to something that's intellectual or epistemological or something, just suddenly turn on the humility. I just, I just don't think it works that way, which is why I think it's interesting that the text we're using as a jumping off point it's something richer than talking about the brain or a set of ideas. It's talking about the heart. It's talking about that which determines really your state of being, that which determines your character. These things are surely habits. If you are incapable of being open to other people when it's not a matter of intellectual debate, then I'd 
it's hard to imagine how when it does come to something, that's a matter of intellectual debate. In other words, if your ego is in control in most situations, then it will be in control in this situation as well. And so what seems to me is that you can get so far by saying, well, we need to recognise the limits of what we know, etc. But actually, unless this is a cultivated practice in some way, that permeates or, you know, other aspects of our social being, other aspects of our character, then that will just be a set of instructions that will necessarily fall on deaf ears because the ego will just keep getting in the way. I really love that point. I think you're right. There's something about cultivating a heart and this idea of a heart that you carry with you into lots of different situations that needs to be worked on, that needs to be cultivated. And I guess... What I also wonder about and what I've studied a bit is how the context and the environment can push that heart around and maybe even shape the heart in ways that mm. become more enduring. So um, both of you were talking about social media environments that don't invite uh, uh, experiences or expressions of intellectual humility. What is what is introducing ourselves and participating in those environments doing to our heart long term? I mean, how is that shaping us as people? And I guess if there's one point that I could become convinced of through my research is that it's that this disposition to be intellectually humble is really influenced by, if not dependent on, the environments that we're in and the environments that we create. And I think, Waleed, you raised the point that we have a hand in creating these environments. And so they, in a sense, are the context that we create are an expression of our heart, but they are also shaping us at the same time. So there's this really interesting interaction between the two. Um, and I wonder what you all think about the influence of the context or the environment on, on a heart that can humble itself. Mm. See, I, I think that's in many respects the crucial question. Because uh, if we live in an environment where taking down one's opponents is celebrated as the kind of arch political come democratic virtue, uh, if we see our opponents as obstacles to the vision of a common life that we really want to pursue, and if the best thing fundamentally that our opponents could do is essentially go away, in other words, the thing that, uh, that stands between us and the just society that we envisage, that we pursue, are these people who simply need to be vanquished and therefore have nothing, nothing to, to contribute not only to our common life, but also individually to our understanding of the world. I mean, there's a, there's a great political theorist, George Kateb, who said that you know, part of the benefit of the bi-party system where you know, one party is in power and then the other is that it's almost like we have this mandated period during which we get to see the world through the particular coloration, through the valences of another person's life or another person's experience, another class's experience. And I think what's, what's so curious about that is we, we tend to think of periods of being out of dominance or out of control as being things that simply need to be endured uh, until we sort of marshal the conditions whereby our, our side can get back in power again, rather than as conditions under which something fundamental that we are lacking is being offered to us, which is not to say that our opponents are completely right, obviously not. Uh, so, so that's one side of this. The other side of this social environment that you're talking about, Tanil, and I, I love the way that you phrased it, is that we have social incentives for believing what we do and never backing down from what we say we believe. Um, I would call these perverse incentives where, you know, being really convinced, uh, a conviction that borders on arrogance. And, you know, there's good reason why Henry David Thoreau called convictions things that imprison us, things that lock us into positions of inflexibility, of ultimately blindness. Um, I think what's, what's so curious about that is that, you know, we do not celebrate moments of recognition of the contribution that another person has made 
to our shared body of knowledge or to our understanding of the world. There are active disincentives for doing that. And if you then combine that with a kind of culture of aspirationalism, where you're in competition with other people, and the key is, especially in education, my God, especially in education, is to get there before someone else takes your spot. Then you have, I mean, don't you? You have the, culti- the perfect cultivated conditions for intellectual arrogance, for a degree of imperviousness, and for a feeling that I don't really need other people, especially other people that don't belong to my ideological tribe. But also, I think, a disposition that sees the world as something to be dominated and conquered. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Rather than as something that is to inspire. Right? So, I mean, I, when I think about the idea of a heart that doesn't feel, say, feel awe, what, what would such a heart make of the natural world? So take an example. I suspect what it would make of the natural world is that there are lots of resources there, <laughs> right? It wouldn't necessarily take that there are lessons to be drawn or that there are things that you might want to submit to in that context. Um, this is why I'm keen on sort of, uh, is overcoming the right word? I don't know, doing away with this separation. I think this is an integral mode of behaviour, right? If you start to think about epistemic humility, sure, but it would surely pervade behaviour. It would pervade your whole worldview, right? Mm, mm. Because rather than seeing yourself as the apex predator in the jungle of life, you would see yourself as something altogether different. Let's throw this back to you, though, Tanil, because one of the things that really commended your work to me in the first place was the way that you've identified intellectual humility as being almost a precondition to effective learning. Well, that's right. And as we've been talking, I've been thinking about it. I mean, I think you're right. We have all of these environments where we're in where it feels like humility is disincentivized. We fear that will be punished or held back somehow by experiencing or expressing humility. And um, part of what, you know, that was interesting to me, I guess. That was just a question that I had is, is intellectual humility beneficial? We often feel like it might not be, even though the philosophers talk about, you know, Socrates talks about, as you mentioned, how it is beneficial. So all I can tell you is that we find that it can be good for us. Getting back to this idea of awe and discovery, I mean, you can't learn what you presume to already know. And without intellectual humility, we're in a sense stuck where we are. With it, we're open to making new discoveries. That's a real benefit. Um, But we find this, I mean, even more tangibly looking at students real teenagers in the classroom, actually, that to the extent that they're intellectually humble, they're more open to feedback. And as a result, they improve more. Um, they learn more. We're assessing learning here by their by their marks or their grades in school. Far from perfect measure, but but tells us something. You know, even though we have often these intuitions about how humility or intellectual humility makes us vulnerable, how it could be harmful to us, how it's not the way to get ahead in this world, um, to really see the full picture of this is to acknowledge the fact that it it can be beneficial. It, it helps us learn. In fact, I might go so far as to say we can't learn without it. You know what, what you've just said there, Tenille, presupposes? Well, sorry, not what you said, but the condition or the state that you're critiquing there. That condition presupposes that we are already formed, doesn't it? I mean, if if I have nothing to learn, if there's nothing you really have to teach me, if I don't need to be open to the world in any way, to my surroundings, if there's nothing that I should humble myself to, then actually I'm in a I'm in a kind of stasis. There's no there's no flux at all. There's no growth. There can be because there's no need to be, because I'm preformed. It's sort of like, it's almost like it glides over 
the uh, the whole process of formation, <laughs> the process of becoming something, and even the idea that that's a perpetual process, that that never ends. Like, really, that should be happening right until the moment of death. Mm. But we foreclose that. And it's, I, I've never really quite thought about, I don't know, the, the paradigms that govern our society in quite that way. But now that I think about it, they, that is kind of the paradigm, isn't it? We, You might form as a kid and then you go out and you, it's your job at that point to be whatever you are in the world. And we often talk about people being themselves or that sort of thing. There's, some, there's a certain fixity, I think, if not across society, then within the individual person, I think, in the way in which we conceive ourselves. I agree. <laughs> I agree completely. Can I just add something here, though? I really want to, I want you to have the last word, Tennille. So let me just add, I'm not sure if it's a slight point of difference, Waleed, but I think it may be a point of difference. Um, one of the things that we're assuming here is that there's kind of inner formation. There's the formation of the self or the cultivation of certain you know, virtues that are both good for us and good for our life with other people. But if we, if we come back to this idea that it's not just knowledge, but it's knowledge as a form of social standing. It's knowledge as something, not simply that I know, but something that I perform. And I perform uh, as a way of succeeding in the eyes of others or retaining a particular position. This is why I keep coming back to this definition of humility from one of my favorite philosophers, Jan Zwicky, the Canadian Wittgensteinian philosopher. She says that at its heart, humility is a deep unconcern with the social fate of the self. I think that's kind of extraordinary because what it's saying is that humility is willing to put one's reputation or the primary concern with one's reputation in the eyes of others that I'm trying to convince that I've already got everything or convince that I deserve the standing that, I, that I've been accorded. It's the preparedness to lose that or to lay that to the side for the sake of cultivating a better disposition personally to the world and for the sake of cultivating a disposition within which other people also see the benefits of backing down from the projection of, uh, I know what I need to know. I'm absolutely right in my convictions. Does that take us any further, Tennille, do you think? Well, the, sorry, before Tennille, the, the latter half of that's really important, Scott, because the first half of what you described is also true of extreme arrogance. Yes, yes, it is. That's right. Okay. Sorry, Daniel. Go on. I mean, I think we're kind of assuming again that humility reaps no social benefits. And I'm just not sure it's true. Mm. Mm. Displaying intellectual humility in some contexts isn't incentivized. But I'm for all people and in all contexts, I'm not sure that it always is disincentivized. I mean, we have it, it's around. And, um, you know, you can think about people who are more humble and more arrogant and who do you tend to, to like more? So I guess that would be my question about that. Uh, deep unconcern with the social fate of the self. Um, Maybe this is opening too big of a wormhole in which we think about displays of intellectual humility as being uh, insincere in some wow, way where yeah. you're just trying to mm. um, Performative to humility. make somebody like you. Sure, a false kind of humility. But so let's not forget about that. But the other part, the part of it that's true, I think, is this part that we all feel, which is that every time that we approach authentic vulnerability with another person, we are laying down our defenses and we are, well, we're a little bit more vulnerable. Um, and that's risky. So in that sense, it's true, you know, to be willing to take that risk is to have a deep unconcern with how another person reacts in service of a greater goal. There's a certain humility that maybe this is what Scott's getting at where actually it's a preparedness to be thought a fool which is a different mm. thing because that's never really celebrated. I mean, I don't know, unless, unless you're a performance artist whose character is a fool, <laughs> it's hard to imagine a scenario where that actually works for you in a social way. But if you're prepared to f experience that for the sake of something greater, then I think you're getting close to what Scott might be gesturing towards. 
I think that that is true. I think I agree with that to be being willing to be seen as a fool could be humility, but haven't we all also experienced these moments where you feel empowered and emboldened to be able to speak your question to the world, to be able to show to the world what you don't know? I mean, in some ways, yeah. it's a real sign of confidence mm -hmm. to give voice to the question that you have. And one's questions can determine how educated one becomes and how much of an expert one is. Wow the depth and kind of richness of the question itself is a sign of expertise and can be. So there's this real kind of tension. It gets murky. It seems to contradict itself that all of these layers, is humility making us vulnerable? Is it making us less confident? Or is it a sign of, of confidence? And is it actually bolstering mm. our confidence? Mm. Scott, anything you want to say? Oh, my goodness. I just think that's that's magnificent. And and what it also demonstrates to Neil, and I know that this is something that you've touched on in various ways throughout your research. I mean, if we see intellectual humility as in a very real way, one of the preconditions, one of the conditions of possibility of a healthy democratic life, um, that ultimately we need one another, in fact. And there are things about one's social reputation that can productively be laid to the side. Uh, in order to uh, find a benefit to the whole and therefore to oneself. I mean, intellectual humility may well be good to make children better learners. It may well help and encourage their growth through education. But if we see education as fundamentally preparing children also to be democratic citizens, it seems to me that intellectual humility is one of the crucial virtues, one of the crucial capacities uh, um, even when we're not teaching them civics <laughs> or or history or politics. This is one of the ways in which we are preparing uh, one another for life together in what we can hope, what we can aspire to be in a just society. Yeah, I could say that educating for a habit of mind like intellectual humility, and I think I even believe this, I think that's more important than trying to fill students' heads with a certain set of core uh, skills or facts, rather giving giving students the tools to develop this habit of mind where they love and care about learning so much, feel so uh, empowered to dig and ask their own questions and so willing and courageous to wade into the unknown that they might make new discoveries that help all of us out because you're right, we do need one another. Um, I think that that's a worthy goal. Quote, I think I even believe this. That might be my favourite <laughs> so. quote from a guest ever on this show. Tanil, thank you so much for giving us that quote, but also for your contribution across the show more broadly. It's been wonderful to have access to you. Thank you so much, Waleed and Scott. I really, really appreciate the conversation and uh, I hope I haven't mucked up the issues too much, but it was no. a pleasure to be with you. No, not at all. Tanil Porter is Assistant Professor in the Department of Educational Psych uh, Psychology. Yes, that's the word, not philosophy. It's just you always lean towards saying philosophy on this show, don't you, Scott? Psychology, Educational <laughs> Psychology at Ball State University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. We'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.